Hey everyone. Um, you know, you have to ask yourself sometimes why you're doing something, right? Like what, why, why do I take time out of my day when I could be spending it with family or friends and <clears throat> excuse me. And you know, why, why am I doing what I'm doing? Well, this podcast, um, has been rewarding on, on many levels and this particular podcast is something a little special for me personally. Um, Constance Hale is the guest and she so happens to be a uh, tremendous influence uh, for me. Um, Out of the three books that I recommend to people when they want to get better at sort of line level writing, the sentence level, the word level, grammatical level, um, you know, her book stands on top of uh, the three, which would be Strunkton White's Elements of Style, um, her books in Syntax and William Zinzer's on writing well. Um, and, you know, I'm so thankful that, that I was able to have um, such a person on this podcast. And, and um, I'm also really happy to announce that we'll be giving away um, a few of her books. Um, we're going to be giving away Sin and Syntax and Vex, Hex, Smooch, and Smash. All of them are signed before total books, uh, two of each. Head over to www.bleedingink.fm and click on Constance's uh, episode to enter. And I hope her books have as much an impact on your writing as they've had on mine. So thank you so much and uh, welcome to the show. There is nothing to writing. All you do is sit down at a typewriter and bleed and bleed and bleed. What's this? Bleeding Ink, a podcast for indie authors with J.S. Leonard. Hey, everyone. Welcome to episode 12 of Bleeding Ink, a show of conversations with remarkable writers. Tune in every other week on iTunes or Stitcher. And for those of you who've rated the show on iTunes, thanks so much. Makes my heart feel so good. If you hadn't had a chance yet, please do visit bleedingink.fm where you can sign up for giveaways and my mailing list that dishes out tools, tips and updates for all your writing needs. And remember, giveaways end two weeks after an episode's air date. My guest today is Constance Hale, best-selling author of Sin and Syntax and Vex Hex Smash Smooch. She has worked as an editor at the Oakland Tribune, San Francisco Examiner, Wired, and Health. She's also edited three dozen books. Her writing appears in Afar, The Atlantic, Smithsonian, The Los Angeles Times, and Honolulu. Now, Connie is a delight, an honest, heartwarming delight. She projects a buoyant, youthful energy that inspires me to keep placing pen to paper or fingers to keys, no matter the brain strain. She's a pat on the back and a gentle nudge out of the nest. I hear her saying, you have wings, take flight, soar, write. Her book, Sin and Syntax, took my feeble grip of English and tightened it like a vice. It is among my most highly recommended books on learning how to write well, to write with moxie and shake things up. It allows me to be wicked while good, mischievous while remarkable. She taught me how to captivate through dynamic, crisp, clean language. After reading Sin and Syntax, I realized language at its core can only express a subject performing an action. All other constructs and mechanics are scaffolding to this single feature. And through servicing actions that highlight states of being, 
We empathize with the doer or taker and acquire genuine emotion. John hits Sam. Ouch. I'm sad for Sam and I dislike John. This is writing's absolute power. It is raw existential energy with potential to mold the human psyche and ignites with a willing mind. I can't express the life-altering impact this realization made upon me. It may appear trite at first glance, but for whatever reason, I had worn a pair of muddy goggles most of my life, and Constance lovingly wiped them clean. She also replaced the glass, put on new straps, and bumped up the prescription. She enlightened all aspects of English grammar hitherto mysterious, be them prepositions, adverbs, passive voice, cadence, or insert syntax paradigm here. She covers it all, and you will be better for reading her. In this episode of Bleeding Ink, Connie and I discuss her career, her impact on other writers, how we can all benefit from an agile creative process, where Moling's importance equals the making. We discuss how she overcame her struggles, her latest work, and where she's headed. This one, everyone, seriously, this one, this interview, for me, is a special one. Constance has been highly influential in my life, and I'm just thankful to have had her on the show. I truly, truly hope you enjoy it. Thanks. Hey, everybody. Really, I cannot even tell you how excited I am to have my guest today. Her name is Constance Hale, but she goes by Connie, so we'll call her Connie in the interview. But she is the author of Sin and Syntax, and I wanted to welcome her. Welcome, Connie. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It's, it's, it's my absolute pleasure. And I just want to tell you a little story about how I discovered Sin and Syntax. So I was taking this like entrepreneurial course, right? And it's, it's this, uh, the, the woman that was given the, the, uh, the workshop was actually a very good writer. And I was starting to like spout off some things I, you know, I was try, trying to say that I knew what I was talking about with writing. And, and um, I have a few books that, that, uh, that I, you know, sort of turn to uh, for advice. And one of which is Strunk and White's, you know, Elements of Style. That's, that book sort of really changed things for me. And I got a really interesting reply from, from uh, Amy, was the, was the girl giving the class. And she goes, Strunk, really? No, you got to read Sin and Syntax by, by Constance Hale. And I was like, whoa, that's a pretty big statement. <laughs> and um, so I did. Uh, you know, I'm not going not gonna to fight Amy. Um, I still love Strunk, don't get me wrong. But, but uh, it, was, it was awesome because I read your book. And um, it actually led me to reading on writing well by William Zinser, mm-hmm. if that's how you say his last name. I can't never get it right. And um, and those are the three books now. If anyone ever tells me if they want they want to write better, I'm like read those and you're set. <laughs> so thank you so much for writing your book. It has had the like, most the most profound impact on on my writing that I think any other book has had. Um, and for those who don't know, who you are Connie. Go ahead. And how tell has us it impacted? I'm curious. How has oh. it impacted? You know, it's interesting because um, where Strunk sort of got me was just sort of um, the, the omit needless words, the omit unnecessary words rule um, really helped tone down my language. But OK, this is what. OK, here we go. <laughs> I've always struggled with English um, in, you know, g- growing up and taking English classes. It wasn't my strongest subject. And um, and it's always been that way. I mean, I, mean, I you know, I Strunk sort of clarified some things, but, you know, I, I never really got into the nitty gritty of English. and. It's interesting. Your book, for some reason, resonated with me, and all of a sudden, it like kind of clicked and unlocked, sort of brushed away a lot of these like blocks that I had, and I was like, "Oh, well, that makes a lot more sense." Oh, that's okay. So English is just that, <laughs> and um, it, th- that's pretty much. I mean, aside from 
several other tips and bits of advice and also examples of other authors' works and also your sort of before and afters in your book, um, that's, that's what had the most profound impact on me. Does that make sense? It does. I, I love that idea. I'm, I think, well, I was trying to sort of do both things. On the one hand, I was trying to teach people grammar or stuff that they had maybe been exposed to, but in a way that was so boring that they never learned it. And they just came to feel that this was something that they could master. And then, but at the flip side, I really was just trying to inspire them and, and, and shake up their idea about what language could be and give everyone a sense of play. Cause my, my belief is that a sense of play with language is actually innate to us. That's what we're born with. That's what we mm -hmm. have when we're kids before teachers beat it out of us. Yeah. And so, and yet it's still there. So the whole idea of the book was to try to shake off some of that stuff that was deadening and um, reawaken that innate sense of playfulness and inspiration and love of language, because really that's what we're born with. Well, you know what's interesting about that is I um I come from a fine art background so I I'm a, vi a visual artist by I guess by you know through co college through learning and um you know I've related a lot of things in my life to just learning how to paint right and um you know it's about exploring with color and also sketching out things and sort of refining as you go and and molding um it's it's actually interesting because it applies to a lot more in life than just in you know art um or excuse me painting it applies to business it applies to any sort of creative endeavor. And um, your book really did sort of hit that on the, the, the nail on the head for me as like, you know, language is something that, that you know, you mold and you shape and you sculpt um, and you can, you know, you can, like you said, you can play with. And I think that's really important. Um, it's a really important concept because there's, there's the syntax, right? There's the semantics of language, which can really get in the way of that idea. And you, I th you did a, an amazing job of taking those two sort of... Um, sides of the coin and um you know giving the syntax with the playfulness like here, here here's what an antecedent is right or here's just let's just talk about nouns and verbs right okay. and um let's break down simple sentences right that that the simple sentence thing uh, you're, you're the section on simple sentences in the book like was, was huge for me <laughs> i know it sounds silly it actually no it doesn't sound silly it, it, it but what it did was say you know this is all language is it's basically a subject and an action and here's the basic the most primal sort of ways of constructing um, a thought or an idea. And, and, you know, I think I was letting a lot of other things get in my way. Well, um, I think when it's part of the way we're educated, you know, we're educated yeah. to think that long, complicated, sophisticated things are smart or better. Right. And in fact, uh, some of the most powerful writing is, is not that at all. So, but there's one other element to, you know, using the fine art metaphor. Mm -hmm. I, think um, you were kind of using sculptural um, ideas, mm -hmm. but I think if nothing else, uh, the idea of having a broad palette, yeah. you know, that English is this amazing language with that has absorbed words from so many other languages and is so rich in and of itself and so flexible and plastic, to use an art word. Um, but really, we have this huge palette, and most of us don't avail ourselves of that palette. You know, mm -hmm. um, we we use the same words over and over again, and don't take the time to explore and play with altogether new words. And they may not even be fancy words; they're just words that we don't turn to regularly. 
I think what you did really well in the book is when it comes to fancy words, right? Because I, I used to be a, a victim using really flowery fancy words that really didn't mean anything. But you, you, you've laid down some pretty fair ground rules for what is and isn't acceptable, like using Latin and Greek words with, you know, ION at the end of them mm-hmm. um, and how that introduces vagaries. And you've got your, what, seven rules of, of uh, you know, words that just, uh, just, just introduce it just makes your language abstract and obtuse and hard to understand. Right. The seven dead, the seven deadly sins when it comes to nouns. And, um, I think that the key is, is just, you know, are you being precise and specific and visual or are you being abstract? You know, are you giving the reader something that he or she can picture or feel? Um, or is it some uh, abstract idea that has no shape or color? Right. And it's interesting because um, um, Amy, the girl that, that suggested the book to me, she uh, is all about like crispy, vivid, concrete language. And this is less like, you know, she spouts that every second she can. She can. And, and her language is quite vivid and alive when she when she writes to people. Um, and it's I can see now how that that came through from your book, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So it's kind of neat to see, you know, because she's influenced several other writers and it's neat to see sort of, you know, the origins of that. Um, and, 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 you know, it really did come through. So be proud. <laughs> uh, thank you. Well, it's also, you know, verbs. I mean, I spend so much Absolutely. time on verbs and it's amazing how frequently people use the verb is and, mm-hmm. uh, miss, miss the opportunity to it. And it doesn't have to be something, um, again, something unusual or, or it's, I mean, it's great whenever words are unexpected because it's wonderful to have surprise in writing, mm-hmm. but, uh, Strictly, you were talking about the simple sentence chapter and understanding that the most dynamic thing in a sentence is the verb. And that relationship of the subject and the verb is it. That's the story of the sentence. So if you pick those words carefully, your writing will be interesting and suspenseful just, but just without a lot of, a lot else. Yeah. Um, yeah, I didn't even understand the difference between static and dynamic verbs um, before I read your book. And I'd actually been studying some phenomenology, <laughs> which is Uh-oh. really obtuse. But 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 it was interesting because because I didn't like get that, you know, all, all we're describing really is states of being and a static verb is a state of being. And like, for some reason, like that really resonated with me, even though a dynamic verb is, is I mean, uh, technically describing a state of being, it is in an active way. Mm-hmm. Um, and that like, it, yeah. And also you, you give a ratio, right, of, of right. the number of static verbs you should use for dy- to na- dynamic verbs. And that was immediately helpful, okay. you know. Um, I, want, I want to get into some more of that. But, but let's, um, let's, let's, let's backtrack just a little bit. And can you just tell us a little bit about, like, where you came from, how you, what inspired you to start writing? Sure. Well, I came from, I have an unusual um, origin story. I was born on, in a little sugar plantation town on the North Shore of Oahu in Hawaii. Uh, and I was raised by two parents who spoke, who were college educated on the East coast, who spoke and expected from us grammatically correct English. And yet, uh, all my friends and many of my teachers spoke Hawaiian Creole, Mm. uh, which we call, we call pidgin English. Uh, so I, I had this childhood where I was constantly flipping back and forth between completely bastardized English and the king's english as it were and mm. i think that it was 
it just aroused, maybe it gave me a little bit of a facility because I had the benefit of being bilingual without speaking another language. I mean, I was bilingual in English. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, when you are bilingual, it gives you a certain sensitivity to language. Um, I did also study Latin and French later, but in in high in school, but um, I think that I had this intuitive sense that a lot of the rules that were being taught were suspect, and that there was something about pidgin English that was wonderful. We loved telling stories in pidgin. Pidgin was a funny, almost like. Um, you know, many non-standard Englishes, you know, whether Black English or, or Spanish or Spanglish, it was, it was funny and it was powerful. And, and why were we supposed to write uh, academic papers in this other style, which seemed deadly to me? So that curiosity just continued to, I think it percolated somewhat unconsciously while I was in high school. And then it really rose to the surface when I was in college and studying poetry and able to talk about some of these ideas with uh, some very evolved professors who were as it turned out, fascinated by this idea of pidgin English. And mm-hmm. so, um, in a funny sort of way, having, you know, this very famous English professor at Princeton University ask me to tell the story of Little Lay Puahi in the Wild Puaa, <laughs> which is our version of Little Red Riding Hood featuring a very fat, ugly pig instead of a wolf because we don't have wolves. <laughs> you know, and the idea that this famous professor would be fascinated by this language and would see the poetry in this language, I think liberated me in a way to begin the exploration that resulted in both Sin and Syntax and my next book after that, Vex, Hex, Smash, Smooch, which is, you know, just what is this English and what are these rules? So questioning it in a certain way and coming up with my own ideas. And then, of course, um, I became a journalist and um was an editor as well as a writer, and I found that some of the ideas that I had evolved were very useful when I was trying to edit other copy. And so Sin and Syntax is really a combination of, you know, ideas that came out of my upbringing, um, things I learned, good things that I learned in school about writing, and then um, a little bit of teaching of writing that I did to teenagers, and then finally the editing that I did of professional copy. And all of those ideas, I tried to sort of merge all of those those ideas into a method or an approach that would be different from the usual pedagogical approach and would be different even from maybe the way a lot of people are edited. So, but mm-hmm. you know, again, going back to what we were talking about earlier, the goal really being to free people up, to let yeah. them explore and to give them some basics so that they don't make stupid mistakes and they're not ignorant about the way language works, but you know, really just to uh push them in new directions and encourage them to find their own voice and maybe um oddball ways that I suggest. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you wrote Sin and Syntax to sort of facilitate, um, not facilitate, but to, to ease people, to help people, you know, discover language and understand it better and, and get the, you know, the sort of the, the ground rules in so they could really clarify. I think, I think that's one of the yeah. things Sin and Syntax does is really helps clarify uh, language and, and people's ability to communicate. Um, now I, I, I'm, I, so Vex, Hex, Smash, and Smooch, um, I'm still in the middle of, but you have an, an, an amazing section on, on the passive voice mm-hmm. in that. And um, like, 
what, 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 why did you decide to, you know, write that book after sentence and tax? Like what was your goal there? Well, you know, it's kind of funny sentence and tax, um, was out there. It was very hard when I was writing sentence and tax to say everything that I wanted to say about verbs. You'll notice if you pick it up, there's a chapter on verbs, at, yeah. least, at least in the first edition, because there's now a new edition. Uh, in the first edition, I had a chapter on verbs, and then I had like, I don't know, two or three appendices on verbs. There's so much to say about <laughs> verbs. And so after sentence and text was successful, my publisher came back to me and said, you know, do you have another language book in you? And this was after 10 years or so. Um, and I thought the only thing that I have more to say about is verbs. I mean, I had mm. more to say about them in when I was writing sin and syntax and I tried to cram it into the appendices. Mm -hmm. And I thought the only thing that I could really write a whole book on, but then that's cool because I believe that the verb is the most important word in the sentence. And mm -hmm. I, um, I just had a lot to say about it. And I also had had, I had this motivating question when I, went into the book, which is, does everyone agree with me that the verb is this important? And how has the verb evolved to this position of importance in English in particular? Interesting. Yeah. Okay. And so, as you know, the first few chapters of the book are actually an exploration of the history of language and the history of English and mm -hmm. um, a, an attempt to answer this question of, you know, do linguists and do other speakers and writers in other languages agree with my proposition, which the answer was mostly yes. Um, mm -hmm. And then, and then the book becomes um, more uh, an exploration of sentences. And then in the end, um, the last two chapters are really about usage and all these kind of really weird and confusing verbs that exist in mm -hmm. our language. Mm -hmm. And so um, the passive voice is kind of interesting because the chapter on the passive voice is everyone's favorite chapter, it seems. And it's right there, kind of in the center of the book, um, mm -hmm. midway. And I think, so I believe that there's mass confusion out there about the passive voice. Oh, I agree with and you. <laughs> people, and you'll notice that in both of my books, I do not call things active verbs and passive verbs. Mm -hmm. I call them dynamic and static. And you mentioned that earlier. And I, mm -hmm. I think there's, and you mentioned not really understanding this notion of static verbs previously. And I think that's because a lot of teachers and a lot of writers call them passive verbs. And then that gets confused with the passive voice. And there's just this mass muddy confusion mm. um, over what's what, what's good, what's bad. Um, and uh, so that's one problem is that is trying to, trying to disentangle these things and treat them individually and, and say, well, no, no, they're not passive verbs. They're just state of being verbs. And they're not bad right. in and of themselves. They're just not dynamic. And if you want your writing to be dynamic, you need to use dynamic verbs. So, the, you know, that's one thing to say. And then the next thing to say is, okay, what is this passive voice? And I have a lot of passion about it because I think a lot of um, unsophisticated writers and editors lambaste the passive voice mm. and there's this kind of stereotypical cliche among writing teachers um, that you're not supposed to use the passive voice mm -hmm. and it gets carried so far as to for example i once worked at a little newspaper which shall remain nameless um, <laughs> that was in a small town and had a lot of small minds operating it and there was a rule there that we were not to use the passive voice in a headline mm. and that's a dumb rule mm. um, it makes for 
unnecessarily long and complicated headlines sometimes. Mm-hmm. And um, I just had this feeling that people were, people had just had the wrong idea. And people who were editors or teachers and were calling themselves experts were discouraging the use of the passive voice when actually it exists for very good reasons. But most people just don't know when it's right to use the passive voice and when it's wrong to use the passive voice or when it's helpful to use the passive voice and it leads to better communication and when the passive voice leads to less good communication. Right. So, so I just had a lot of ideas about it and a lot of fun things to say. And I, I, I had saved over the years passages to prove my points. And yeah. um, it seemed, I don't know why, but that's the chapter, for example, when the book was excerpted, I think the book was excerpted by, um, who was it excerpted by? Anyway, that was always the favorite chapter. Uh, I think Grammar Girl ran some, no, it wasn't Grammar Girl. Anyway. Great. Yeah, anyway, she she picked some things, but you know, the passive voice was the thing that that um, everyone just seemed to enjoy the most. So I'm happy well, about that because it. I think it's if you get if you get the passive voice, you understand what it is, you understand what it isn't, you understand when it's good, you understand when it's bad. You you really understand a lot about sentences. True. Very true. You know, I think that attitude, though, um, of just like completely avoiding the passive voice arises from it's an overcorrection. Yeah. Right? It's like because the passive voice has permeated, uh, dare I say, infected most people's um, like, like the way they speak. Mm-hmm. And it's used a lot more than it should. And I think, you know, it's it's sort of a, you know, may as well just nip it in the bud sort of attitude, which isn't the right attitude. I, I agree with that. Um, um yeah, so yeah, it's 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 wonderful that that you took the time to to sit down and really, um, you know, clarify and and say, hey, this is when you can use, this is when you should use, this is when you shouldn't use it, and um, it's it's really nice to see, you know, having both both sides of that argument there. Um, so recently, sentence syntax just surpassed what a hundred thousand copies sold. It did. It's selling like hotcakes. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. That must feel pretty good. <laughs> yeah, well, it's odd because the book was out there for a long time, just kind of, you know, <clears throat> languishing on the mid list. And uh, what happened was it slowly was discovered by teachers and mm-hmm. been adopted in a lot of courses all over the country and in fact, all over the world. And it's, there is a, kind of ironic story there because when I wrote Sin and Syntax, I very much was not writing a textbook. I thought I was writing a book for adults, for people who were out of school, who maybe had or hadn't studied language, who had or hadn't studied grammar, who had or hadn't studied how to be a writer, um, but were adults in a position of wanting to write or having to write professionally and wanting some really good information. And so I wrote it with that audience in mind and with a certain sensibility, you know, uh, mm-hmm. in other words, there is no teacher demanding that you read this chapter. So it's going to have to be pretty entertaining to keep you, keep you, um, focused or riveted, I would hope. But, um, so ironically, because it was written that way, uh, not, you know, the anti-textbook, uh, it worked as a textbook and a lot of teachers uh, began adopting it. And in fact, it's even used in a lot of AP English classes, which really <laughs> cracks me up because it was That's not, great. I was not writing for high school students, but right. um, 
God, I wish I'd run across that book back then. <laughs> yeah. <Man. laughs> so um, the happy, so the happy news is that it it kind of picked up and it was selling a lot and it took a couple of years, but I finally convinced my publisher to do a new edition. I mean, their publishers aren't necessarily eager to do a new edition because it's a lot of money and it's a lot of work and they can just keep selling the old edition and, and it's gravy. So it took some work, but um, one of the ways that I think I convinced them to do it was I had developed some exercises and writing prompts and mm. things like that to go along with the chapters because I use the book uh, when I teach writing. Mm-hmm. And I really wanted to incorporate those in the new book. And so, again, all of this is kind of funny to me because the new, the, the most of the new material that I was adding was exactly the kind of exercises that I didn't want to include in the first book because I didn't want it to seem like a textbook. (laughs) um, Now it really is a textbook, although the writing prompts are written in such a way and the exercises that if you're not in a class at all, but you're just reading the book and and motivated enough to try some new things, uh, those exercises feel like fun exercises to try and not um, kind of, you know, horrible... Writing, writing a sentence a hundred times on the blackboard type thing. Right. Well, I think if there's anyone that could that could accomplish that, it'd be you. You <laughs> <laughs> can make it feel fun and, and light and, and airy and happy. And of course, I had also in Beck's Hex Smash Smooch, which came out before the new edition of Sin and Such at Syntax, I'd included some of these writing prompts and exercises. So I'd kind of gotten the feel for it or at least had a chance to um, try and uh, yeah. things like that um, mm-hmm. in, in that book. So... Anyway, the new edition of Sin and Sector Syntax came out, and um, uh, it's you know I'm happy that it's it's been a, it's being it's successful, and yeah. uh, more than anything else, I just feel that m- I hope more and more people will have this different idea towards language and writing because of right. having been exposed to Sin and Syntax. Right. Yeah. It's yeah. It's interesting. I, I did take a lot from sort of your comparisons that, that you draw between um, you know pigeon and English. Mm-hmm. And um, that, that, that was also quite helpful. So, yeah, I think you've definitely done that. Um, so, so what are you doing today? Are, are you editing? Are you writing more books? What's, what's going on? Well, I, uh, it's, it's kind of funny because I, I'm known for my books on writing. And I should <laughs> say that before I wrote Sin and Syntax, I wrote a book called Wired Style. I was at I saw that, was yeah. Wired Magazine, and that was about sort of how technology um, has affected language and the way we write. Um, so because I have these three books, I'm, that's really what a lot of people know me for, but this, the entire time, my entire professional career, which is now, um, going on 20, 25 years, almost 30 years, I have, I'm a journalist and I was a newspaper journalist and I was a magazine journalist. A lot of my journalism has been about Hawaii and about Hawaiian culture and Hawaiian history and Hawaiian politics. Although I cover many other subjects, I write a lot of profiles, um, and that's probably the profile is one of my favorite forms. I also do a lot of travel writing. So all along, I've had a career as a journalist, just um, not, <laughs> you know, sort of buried in the pages of various um, newspapers and magazines. But um, I have... Um, turned my gaze back to Hawaii and I'm writing a book right now on the hula Mm. traditional dance form of Hawaii, which is, um, 
also vastly misunderstood. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. Yeah. Co-opted by Hollywood and tourism in the 50s and the 60s, and people have a kind of really wrong idea of what hula is. So I'm collaborating with my own hula teacher, who's <laughs> kind of a groundbreaker in his own right. And um, this is going to be what we're calling an intellectual coffee table book. So it's going to have great photos and be a visually rich, uh, luscious book. But I hope we'll also have a relatively um, modest text that will, um, you know, describe this this particular dance form. So mm-hmm. that's what I'm working on right now. That was what I was working on before you called um, chapter awesome. three of that book. Uh, and I also have a picture book, a children's picture book coming oh. this later this year. So that's a little bit of poetry for children. It happens to be set on a beach in Hawaii. Um, mm-hmm. And um, so I do other writing as well. That's great. So it sounds like things are going pretty well <laughs> right now. You've, success is, is definitely in, in front of you. So I, I want to know, what has been the greatest setback in your career and how did you overcome it? I'm not sure I've overcome it, but um, (laughs) there are two things, um, actually. So most of my career, I've had stints at different newspapers and magazines, Mm -hmm. but most of my career, I've been a freelancer. And I would say that the hardest thing for me about being a freelance writer is the constant rejection. So Mm. it's... um, Can you elaborate on that? What What do you mean? Well... You know, you're constantly trying to talk someone into letting you do something. Mm-hmm. Um, because I don't write I don't write for my own benefit. I don't write for a journal. I don't write to put things in a drawer. I write for things to get published, and I get paid by my writing. Mm-hmm. So you're constantly getting excited about something, um, an idea, a story, a character, and trying to talk editors into letting you write about it. And the truth is, any writer will... Who, will, who speaks honestly will tell you that about one in 10 of your ideas gets accepted. Wow. And usually each of those ideas has to be developed. It has to be researched. You have to write a query. You have to, you know, um, pitch that story idea to different editors. And there's just a ton of rejection that's involved. It's easy to say no. And editors are looking for reasons to say no. And I think that's, so that's been, for me, psychologically, that's been um, the hardest thing. And it's not something I've overcome. It's something that you face all the time. Um, And related to that, linked to that, if there were one thing, so that constant rejection, you know, that's not one moment um, that's kind of threaded throughout my career. But there was a moment a few years ago when I had a kind of, and and I'm, as I said, I'm not um, starting out here. Um, And I suppose, you know, people consider me successful. Um, But I had a moment about two and a half years ago, three years ago, where I realized that I really just couldn't make money doing this. Mm. And it was a... um, Combined, it was a it was a bad sort of series of events. The first was I got the contract for Vex Hex Smash Smooch, and of course I was thrilled to have a new book contract. And someone had said yes, yes to my ideas, but the advance was literally half of the advance that I had gotten for Sin and Syntax. So we're talking about you know ten years later, I've become much more successful. My first book is successful, and I'm getting half the advance that I got you know, when I was much younger. And then I did a series 
that was the first event. And then the second event was I was contracted to do a series of articles for the New York Times uh, on their online site about writing a sentence. And I was thrilled. I was so excited to be in the New York Times in this particular area. And it was the, the writing and, and the editing and was very professional. I just loved it. And so many people saw my work. And I got paid less for those columns than I had been paid since I was in J school. Ouch. Ouch. And, and then the third um, moment, and this, this all happened within about six months. Um, mm-hmm. Third thing was I got the contract for the new edition of Sin and Syntax. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of getting into the weeds here, but I had done a <laughs> second edition of Wired Style back in 1999. And mm-hmm. for the second edition, it was the exact same publisher in both cases. They gave me $30,000 to do an all new, edi- new edition, which mm-hmm. meant it needed to have 20% new content and it needed to be updated, etc. So in 1999, I got $30,000 from, from a division of Random House to, to do a new edition of Wired Style. And in 2012, I think it was, I got $3,500 oh, dear. to do a new edition of Sin and Syntax. Mm. So those three events um, combined were as hard to deal with as the constant rejection. You know, sort of like, okay, this is great. I'm getting these wonderful creative opportunities. People are saying yes to my ideas. I'm getting some of the best editing I've ever gotten in my life. More people are reading my stuff than I've ever read it before. And my income has been reduced by, what is that, a factor of 10? I mean, I was oh, getting one-tenth yeah. of what I had gotten 10 years earlier. Yeah. And that was a really sobering and depressing react- comment mm-hmm. on what has happened in publishing. Yeah. And on the the value that is placed on the written word yeah. by the market and the com- the conglomeration of publishing and also the online environment. You know, it's just that writing is cheap now, and mm-hmm. um, that was a real. Uh, I, I that put me into a funk. I got, yeah. I was sort of paralyzed there for a while. I just thought I got to change careers. This, this just isn't working. I got a mortgage to pay. I'm working harder than ever and I'm making one tenth of what I've made in the past. And yet I'm writing at the top of my game and for some of the, you know, for WW Norton and for Random House and for the New York Times. Yeah. And I don't know that I've really recovered from that one. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I do more editing now. So I, yeah. I edit books for other people, which pays a lot more than writing does for me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm a very good editor and I've edited, edited 36 books. And, um, and then I also just um, accepted that I accepted an idea that I had when I was back in my 20s and starting out, and that was the kind of starving artist idea. And that, you know, sometimes you really do what you love to do, and you can be quite good at it and and not be financially successful. Um, And so I just kind of had to um, decide that I wanted to keep writing. And mm-hmm. that I would uh, never have a new car. Mm. Um, mm. And I, you know, I, I'm not complaining because I was lucky. I, I 
you know, I have a house to live in and I, I, uh, I, I've been lucky. I've been fortunate in life in some ways. And, uh, I just decided that I didn't want to give it up. Yeah. Well, knowing what you know now, what advice could you have given to your younger self? Um, I think probably I mean the main thing is probably hasn't changed at all which is if you're going to write don't expect to get rich mm-hmm. and because you won't get rich <laughs> you know just <laughs> really do what your heart desires I yeah. hate, I hate the cliche follow your bliss I hate I hate even saying follow your passion but you know do what's meaningful for you and what you love and if if it's meaningful and you love it you will always be excited by it and you'll always do more of it and because you're doing more of it you'll get better and better at it and you'll become more of more of an expert in a very small field or whatever and uh someday you might get lucky Mm -hmm. there might be moments of luck in your life yeah um and it really is luck. Like if you, you know, it was luck when the New York Times called me and asked me to do that thing or, you know, luck when I ended up at Wired and talked them into doing Wired style. And, you know, sometimes you get lucky and yeah. sometimes you don't get lucky and it doesn't mean you're not good. Right. It just means you're not lucky. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's interesting to hear you say that because um, I've just finished Anne Lamott's Bird by Bird recently. And, uh, you know, it's almost an identical sentiment that she, you know, you just need to write because writing is a healthy activity. Um, you know, don't expect it to make you rich, nor expect publishing to validate your existence. Right. Or it's or that's you know the missing piece to your happiness because it's not. You know, mm-hmm. if you're unhappy before pu- being published, um, then you're going to be unhappy afterwards. Mm-hmm. And um, you know that's 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 interesting. So you didn't give up writing, which means, dare I say it, you followed your passion. <laughs> <laughs> And so today you've got some projects. Tell me about your creative process, like how you're going about, you know, the work that you do. Um, well, there's a couple different ways to describe my creative process. Um, by the way, I have an essay on my website. Mm. The title of the essay is Total Risk, Freedom, Discipline. Okay. So <laughs> if someone were to Google that title in my name. I'll, li- I'll link to it in the, in the show notes. Um. And that's kind of my writing mantra. It's, it mm-hmm. was actually the name of, a, of an art, art exhibit at the Guggenheim Museum like decades ago. And I remember yeah. reading a review and seeing that title and saying, that's it. Total risk, freedom, discipline. That's the mm-hmm. writing life. And in a way that informs my – so there's, there's two ways of thinking about process. One is just like how do you get up every day and do what you do? And so I have um, some rituals and some habits and some um, patterns that I stick to that make sure that I write every day, that I sit down in my chair every day, but that, um, that I have the discipline to be a professional writer. But um, I have some ways of making sure that I never stop taking risks, which is the only way you grow as a writer, mm-hmm. and, that I, and that I feel freedom at the same time that I'm really disciplined and I have this, um, you know, I'm a freelancer, but I don't feel that free sometimes. I, I, I'm subject to deadlines and editors and this and that, and yet there are ways that you can feel freedom. And I think if you have those three things always humming, 
um, it's it, for me that's what not only makes ensures that I'm creative, but it ensures that I'm productive and it ensures that I that I that I keep going. Um, so those are like a set of, as I said, like rituals and habits and and methods that I use, um, and that's kind of part of my creative process. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, um, you know, can you, can you elaborate on any, on like any habit or you know, do you super. get up at a certain time? Like how? how describe well, I definitely get up at a certain time, and I try to make sure that I'm in my office. I mean, it varies. Sometimes it's eight thirty in the morning. Sometimes it's it's ten. It sort of depends on. Uh, how late I'm sleeping, but I make sure that I'm in my chair, let's say nine o'clock in the morning and that I stay in my chair and I stay in my office until certainly two o'clock in the afternoon, but usually three. Um, sometimes at two or three, I leave and I go to the gym or go for a swim or I go get acupuncture. I do something else. And then I usually (laughs) come back and I do like an hour or so of email and just checking things because a lot of times when I'm at the gym or I'm I'm swimming in the swimming pool, I have a breakthrough or brain. I have some sort of breakthrough. So I want to come back to my desk and make sure that I capture that. Um, so that's one thing is just kind of like, yes, I'm in my office and I have an office that's completely dedicated to writing. Although there is a bed in the office because napping is part of writing, but, um, you know, I, I, I don't, I I don't answer. I don't take, take personal phone calls in my office. I, I, it's a separate scene altogether. Um, so that's the, that's part of the discipline part. Part of the, um, risk, for example, you know, how do you, how do you institute risk? Right. Well, Mm -hmm. I, make a practice of, uh, every now and then. And I sometimes say about a quarter of the time that, that, um, goes up and down, but I write something that I don't have an assignment for that I might not ever make a penny doing. Um, but something that is really true to my heart or something that I want to do that, um, I'm giving myself permission to do so. In other words, I'm not waiting for an editor to give me an assignment. I'm doing something because I believe the only way you can grow into a new, that you can develop new muscles is to start to develop them. And so um, I have this, you know, way, for example, this little children's book, you know, that was certainly a risk project. I mean, whenever I worked on it, I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know how to do a children's book, but I had this idea and I wanted to write a certain way. And I worked on it over many years and it's always felt like a risk project. And in fact, it's being published by a tiny little regional publisher in Hawaii. I, um, I'm making, you know, I'm in the negative territory when it comes to the money part, but that's, that's what I mean by risk writing. If I don't, if I don't do that, I'll never, I'll never be able to, you know, you don't write children's books. I mean, this is a way for me to do something that I really want to do. So, um, so that's what I mean by risk. You just, you just take risks and you do it in on a somewhat regular basis. Um, Mm -hmm. and so that's kind of about, you know, how I organize my life and, and, um, some practices that I have, but the creative process, there's another way of thinking about the creative process, which is how do you, how do you write a book? How do you write a story? How do you, you know, when you decide on an idea, how do you go about it? And I, even there for me, it's it's the same combination. You could even say that there it's a combination of total risk, freedom, discipline as well. I mean, I have some practices when I'm writing a book. So for example, this book I'm writing right now, I have a horrible tendency to over-research things. I love research. (laughs) I'm with you. One of the very, very best things about being a nonfiction writer is you're a perpetual student. You get to learn new things all the time. People will talk to you and give you interviews, and they wouldn't ordinarily even give you the time of day if you weren't a journalist. And so it gives you access to interesting people and ideas. And so I do a ton of research and 
I come up when I'm starting a book project, I come up with a research plan. So I, I kind of come up with a plan and I analyze um, what's out there and I think, what do I really need to, what do I have to read for this book? Whom, whom do I have to talk to? Um, so I come up with a research plan and then I get a big box, a file box. Mm. And the one I'm looking at it right now, the one that I have for this book is about six inches deep or maybe eight inches deep. And I put a whole bunch of hanging file folders in there and then I start playing with files. And when I do my research, I, when I find things, I type up the notes and I print them out and I stick them in the respective files. And I just, when I'm doing the research, I, I, I'm just collecting material fodder and, um, at some point, I'm, you know, probably when I'm starting out, I have an idea of the overall structure of the book and I um, organize my, you know, I gather stuff, I gather stuff. And at a certain point, that file box is full. Yeah. And when the file box is full, it's time to start writing. Yeah. That's, and, that's it. and I start writing and I just, I start at the beginning and I go through to the end and I know that it's a messy pro- process and I know that the first draft is going to be despicable and I'm going to hate it. And I know that I'm going to have self doubt along the way. And I'm going to stay up nights. Um, sometimes, you know, asking myself what I was thinking, I'm never going to be able to finish this book. And here again, that idea of discipline kicks in where I just keep going. And I know that I've done the research and it is a messy process and I will come out at the end with something that I like and I have to just keep going through it. Um, yeah. And, you know, there's all the writing, which is, I mean, the research is hard for me, actually. If I, if I was really fond of research, I would have been an academic. Um, but um, when I start to write, I get really excited. Although then there's sort of, you know, the depression that comes along when your writing sucks. But, um, you know, I, I'm happiest. I, I feel always excited when I can spend a lot more time writing than I can actually spend researching in the course of a day. So I have a, you know, I have a creative process that is parallel for most of this. Even if I'm doing a shortish article, I follow the same process, you know, first the research plan, then the research, then as I'm doing the research, I start mulling a structure and how are you going to write this and what comes first? And, you know, I mull and I mull and I mull. And by the time I start writing, I've usually figured out the rough structure Mm-hmm. And then I give myself the permission to be very, very messy and to be a very, very bad writer. Yeah. I think, um, I think that is a, an excellent approach because um, it, you, you said a lot of things that I, I've heard with very successful writers. They do the same sort of similar um, sort of strategies. For one, it's about showing up, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you just have to show up. Otherwise, nothing gets done. And I, I think that's the key. Um, and just thereby showing up, it's a contract between you and that project. And, and that's where, you know, the, the show's, this show's name is bleeding ink. That's where the ink is bled. You know, it's like, um, because there's going to be days where you're going to be overjoyed about writing and there's going to be days where your brain simply does not work. And, you know, it's just a roller coaster ride. Yeah. But you also have to know <clears throat> how to feed the imagination. And like mm-hmm. part of my process too, is, you know, that whole idea of like, leaving the desk at a certain point like when you get stuck go Mm -hmm. for a swim you know it sort itself out go weed the garden go water um Mm -hmm. sweeping i love sweeping sweeping cleans the mind um and cleans the mind and settles the soul and also there are things like for example you know i'm writing a book about hula so a lot of times i'll just stop and i'll (laughs) I'll put on my 
I'll take my iPod and I'll and I'll just listen to some Hawaiian music, you know, because yeah. there there are things that you can do to get there are a lot of things you can do to get yourself unstuck. And then there are other things that you can do to just make yourself feel inspired, you know, and remind yeah. yourself why you're writing this book or why you love this thing. And I use music a lot, actually. Yeah. Um, Music's wonderful. For for getting started, for sometimes just and I putter a lot. I so I guess what I wanted to say is in addition to the discipline. Mm-hmm. There's that notion of play and puttering and mm-hmm. maybe doing something that's not the thing you're supposed to be doing, but understanding that the imagination needs that. The imagination needs some breathing room. And sometimes yep. some, you can't force something. You, you, writing is not like um, decorating a cake or you put the icing into that squeegee funnel thing and you just squeeze and it comes out. That's just not how writing is. You have to... There have to be open spaces. There have to be breaks because, you you know, metaphors, you can't force a metaphor. And sometimes you have to just mull things. And Mm -hmm. um, that kind of emptiness or ambiguity can be quite unsettling, but um, you can't get the good stuff without it. Yeah. I I just interviewed Max Gladstone. In fact, released that episode today. Um, but, but it's interesting because we talk about this and he talks about the idea of manager time versus maker time. Mm-hmm. And I think in, in any creative, I mean, any creative who's been at it for a while, they realize that you, they've only got maybe four to five hours of, of hot, you know, strong creative um, energy and mental energy in them in a day. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, then it just kind of gets squeezed out and they need to go do other things. And you mentioned that you said you start, you know, your day and you end around two and then you go do something else and you come back and do some emails. So you and, and you have uninterrupted maker time in the beginning of that day. And then you have your manager time, which is the emails, the businessy stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but but there's also that stepping away, you know, um, and you know, going for a swim or garden or whatever. And I think the subconscious is our, as a creative is, is our, is our, our greatest tool. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the thing we have no control over. And I think the subconscious sort of goes into um, hyperdrive when we start to do activities that don't call upon it, that don't call upon conscious thinking that are more uh, auto- automatic, um, such as, you know, some sport or cleaning. Movement. And um, I think movement is really key. Movements. Yeah. yeah. Getting blood flow going, going for a walk for me is, is huge, yeah. you know? But it's also it's also like um it's it's a kind of passive thinking because mm. when you're doing email or when you're answering phone calls or when you're doing other stuff that manager stuff you're really not thinking about your project. Right. When you're swimming or you're sweeping or you're going for a walk you may not be really mm-hmm. hyper focused on your project but you're not doing something else right i mean your mind isn't doing something else and so email and all that kind of stuff is really different like i cannot almost almost cannot return to writing when i've started down that email path mm-hmm. yeah um so i think that the um it, i would add another there's like the make the third the <laughs> yeah i the manager time and the mulling time the mulling time that's yeah. good Maker manager mulling. It's it's interesting though because I was actually going to say that because I, I I don't think manager time is a time where you're going to have those epiphanies, right? Exactly. <laughs> you're going to be like exactly yeah. scheduling crap, and that's like yeah. the least fun thing to do. But but um, and epiphanies happen in the shower; they happen elsewhere. Right. And I actually schedule those into my day now. I force myself. It, it's important to me. Like I have a, a pretty strict regimen that I follow, and and um you know I will I will have a period of a window where I'm full on. And if it comes, if things come to me great and I work through, you know, the writer's 
the writing process or whatever I'm whatever other creative thing that I'm doing. And then, you know, I'll go I'll go take a nap, man. Taking a nap's great, you know, go for a walk. Exercising is really big and and um and I know that those are feeding back into what um my pursuits. Um I think it's super important. I think especially um Americans <laughs> or or people who are just extremely driven uh tend to completely disregard those things and, and think of them as a waste of time where I actually think the opposite. I think they, they are necessary and vital. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, I agree. So you, you, uh, you also, you also run, run retreats and workshops for writers. Is that true? Speaking of yeah. rolling time, <laughs> I do, um, manager time, um, uh, manager time for me. Um, I do, I have a, I run a writer's retreat in, um, on the beach in my mm-hmm. town in Hawaii every May. This is the fourth one coming up. Oh, and then um, I do a writer's retreat in Vermont with a colleague of mine. We, we didn't, we do that sort of every other year. Uh-huh. Um, and those two are sort of similar. They're for writers in any genre and at any level. And um, it, the whole notion there is to get away from your quotidian world and, and to be in a beautiful place among um, very supportive and very um, creative colleagues and mm-hmm. uh, to allow that some things to happen to yourself, some quiet, some space, some creative inspiration. Um, so that's what those are, the retreats. I also run a very big conference at the Graduate mm. School of Journalism at Berkeley, which is my alma mater. Um mm-hmm got my master's there and um that conference is a is called the narrative is called the latest in long form so it's a gathering of narrative journalists you know very high profile um writers and editors whom we get as speakers and then it's mid-career journalists who come and attend so that's a very different kind of that's not a retreat at all it's much much mm-hmm. um high octane networking uh exciting event of a different kind um yeah and yes, I do all of those. All of those are somewhat, to a certain extent, outgrowths of that moment of crisis when I realized that writing wasn't going to pay the mortgage and um, I needed to find some ways to use some other skills and maybe work with some institutions and make some money. Yeah. Well, that's wonderful, though, because I mean, and I as, prefer doing that to teaching. I mean, some a lot of writers teach to support themselves, and I find teaching actually very draining. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't for me personally. It's it's hard to teach and write. Um, mm. So for some reason, running a retreat is for me personally is more. Uh, I guess it takes straightforward management time, but it doesn't. Um, it doesn't um, destroy my my maker time or my mulling time. I, I, I've, sure. I've figured a way to fit it into my schedule so that it works better for me than direct teaching. Right. Well, I, I think that's wonderful that you found a way to, I mean, as you said before, and it is sort of a sad, not, it is somewhat sad to see writing sort of become, you know, this uh, cheaper activity, I guess, or cheaper and um, product. And and I, I'm I'm sad to see that too. But at the same time, I think it's forcing writers to explore other avenues. And and um, it's 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 wonderful to hear you say you know you found an avenue and it does pertain to writing and using a lot of the skills that you used you know um 
that you learned along the way and, um, you know, you're able to make it work. And I think mm-hmm. a, a lot of other writers can, or either any other creator really, but can, you know, take from that, you know? And by the and, way, um, I, go, I go on writers retreats myself, not ones that I organize, but, um, mm-hmm. I do think that writers retreats are, are, it's really great to leave the world behind and mm-hmm. to go someplace for a week or a long weekend or a week or two weeks if you can. Some some writers' um, retreats and fellowships are for a month, but I think it's important to do that as a writer. As a creative person, it's very important to get out of your um, daily roles, daily habits, pressures, um, mm-hmm. and to just to to really just be alone or in some ways shake off everything else and be alone with your creativity and, yeah. and, and reset. Um, right. so I do think those are really important. So speaking of, of resetting, um, like what, what, ins- what inspires you today? What, are there any writers out there inspiring you or, um, any other, other yeah. modes of creativity? Yeah, there's 457 or 458 <laughs> that inspire me. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I read a lot and, yeah. um, well, I don't read a lot. I don't read as much as some people. I hate it when people say I read a lot. I read every morning. I try to read every morning. So that's a little part of my routine too, is to, to read something inspiring, uh, yeah. at, at the beginning of every day. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm happy just reading the New Yorker every day. There's lots that is inspiring there. Um, I do try to read novels, um, as much as I can, although I usually read them on, vacation i'm the mm-hmm. most recent novel that i i've read some really good books this year um all the light you cannot see i loved that book although i hated the ending um <laughs> i read h's for hawk which was a really interesting book uh written by a british poet and it shakes up a lot of notions about what a memoir is supposed to be and how you can use language and I, that was a really inspiring book and then um i've just just discovered he's been around for a long time, but the novelist John Banville, who's Irish, mm-hmm. I read a novel of his that I just loved. I also read poetry. Um, again, I, I read the poetry in the New Yorker. I often like it. I have a friend who's a poet, Matthews a Pruder, who just came out with a new book. I like his works. So I, I actually like reading a poem or two a day as well. Um, mm-hmm. And I have, I bought Elizabeth Gluck's collected poetry. So um, and, um, um oh gosh um his Derek Walcott so you know a lot of times these big collections of po- po- poetry will come out by poets whom I admire and I just kind of keep their books by my bed and I just open them up and read a poem or two randomly um so you know and then there are the standards I think you know for language for the crisp crisp muscular but always surprising language that I think is really the kind of language that I highlight in my books, uh, Susan Orlean is one of my favorites. Um, and um, gosh, I could go on and on because there are a lot of writers, um, you know, I feel like I work with a group of colleagues. I work at a place in San Francisco called the San Francisco Writers Grotto and we have a monthly book group. And so it's just fun to yeah. be constantly reading things that I might not read otherwise. Um, but I, again, I don't want to make it seem like I, Oh, I read all the time because I actually find it really hard to read. I mean, I, I yeah. it's hard to stick to six hours a day of writing and then fit everything else in life, uh, including sometimes additional activities to make money. 
Um, so I don't spend hours and hours every day reading, but I try to get in a good hour a day. Um, mm -hmm. And then, of course, when I'm editing, there, that involves a lot of reading as well because I'm reading uh, manuscripts. So, yeah, but, I, but I'm also inspired by musicians. I love the... I love you know, Bob Dylan and Jimmy Dale Gilmore and just listening to their songs. I love music, period, um, mm -hmm. and use it a lot to inspire me. And, mm -hmm. and I love art. I don't make art at all. I'm not an artist, but I love looking at art. I love going to a museum and looking at art. It's, I, find it, I find it loosens me up and it, it inspires me to make art. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so... Uh, aside from this children's book and the hula book, uh, do you have anything else going on? What's next for you besides those two things? Well, I, um, I, I've been writing profiles. I have a profile coming out in February in an airline magazine, um, of an artist, uh, an artist in Hawaii, um, and I just wrote a little profile. Well, it was an obituary, actually, or a memorial of um, someone who died last year. And uh, that's really, I, I love writing profiles. Um, mm. And I'm probably, I mean, the next couple of things that I'm having published journalistically are profiles. But also, I think um, I, I'm going to propose, when I, when I finish this book, and the next things I propose to editors are probably going to be profiles. Interesting. Very cool. Very cool. So before we wrap, where, where, where can people find out more about you, Connie? Well, I have a, I have a website, a large website um, called sinandsyntax.com. And there I have um, lots of my thoughts on language. There are articles in different categories. There's just tons of stuff there. And um, my other writing, um, yeah, that website doesn't exist yet, ConstanceHale.com. We're working on that. <laughs> but, um, but I do, and I'm on Twitter, and um, I'm at Sin and Syntax on Twitter. So uh, there are a number of ways to follow me, to, you know, Twitter and website beings. Uh, I have a mailing list as well, which you can join through my, um, through my website. And so I generally keep those people informed when I have an article out or something like that, or when I see an article by someone else that I think is especially worthy. Mm -hmm. Well, I gotta say, if you haven't told listeners, if you haven't picked up Sentence and Tax, it's a must own. Um, and and you have to. I'm telling you now, just stop listening to podcasts if you don't buy it, <laughs> because it's pretty much you know it's the epitome of what you should be um, grounding yourself in. And uh, and, if, and, and and we should add, and if you really want to figure out the passive voice, you'll have yes. to read Chapter Seven. In Vex Hex Smash Smooch. Just buy everything ever from Connie. That's that's <laughs> the that's the lesson here. <laughs> and um, I personally want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for writing such awesome, you know, uh, manuals on writing and, and you've helped me tremendously. And um, thank you. Oh well that's such a compliment. Thank you. And I've loved talking to you, so I very much appreciate your podcast and and, and all your questions. Oh thank you. All right, until next time. Okay, bye. <laughs> bye. For more episodes and giveaways, head over to www.bleedinginc.fm. That's www.bleedinginc.fm. If you want to help me out even more, you can go check out my book, Modern Rituals, The Wayward Three, on Amazon today. 
And if you like what you're hearing, share the show. My goal is to get this show into the hands of as many writers as possible. So share it with your friends, your family, other writers you know, and let's make this happen. And also, I don't know if you guys know this, but I'm a software guy and I make tools for writers. Check out jslauthor.com. That's for J.S. Leonard, jslauthor.com. There you can sign up for my mailing list, get free tools, and all kinds of awesome stuff. Thanks for listening. The ink is run dry. See you next time.